Let's return to the scripture that we read this morning in your bulletin. You want to have that out, but you also have a scripture sheet with your bulletin. Uh, let me take a moment to explain that. Usually the scripture sheet has all the scripture that we have during the message, but this is a special Thanksgiving service. These scriptures pertain to Thanksgiving, and we will reference them, the responsive readings, during this service. But the message comes from one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, from Nehemiah chapter 8. And that's the scripture sheet you have. And if you don't have a scripture sheet, uh, look around on the table or raise your hand and, and we'll get one. Does anybody need a scripture sheet? Anybody need one? Okay. Uh, the We're going to, to mainly look at Nehemiah chapter 8 and what happens in that chapter. Uh, and so you'll need, you'll need that scripture sheet with, as, well as, as well as your bulletin. The Thanksgiving feast, a civic holiday or a sacred celebration. The American Thanksgiving Day is traced back to the colonies in 1621. According to a letter written by a man who was in the Plymouth colony, his name was Edward Winslow. According to a letter he wrote, the Pilgrim colony celebrated a successful harvest. A successful harvest they celebrated with three days of feasting and other celebratory activities. It happened sometime between late September and mid-November. Winslow's letter was written in early December, just a few weeks after the event. William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Colony, wrote a book about that colony 20 years later. In that book, he mentioned this first Thanksgiving celebration in, of 1621. Such harvest celebrations were common in the early history of the colonies in our nation. George Washington, at the request of Congress, made Thanksgiving a national celebration with a proclamation in 1789. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national day of, quote, thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. It was to be celebrated on the last Thursday in November. Eventually, thanksgiving became a federal holiday mandated by our government. Thanksgiving has always been a very special day of thanksgiving, a day of feasting for me. I've tried to keep it as a part of my faith. Now, my secular friends have said to me, wait a minute, John, this is a secular civic holiday. It has nothing to do with your faith. Leave that out of it. Even my Christian friends, have reminded me that a Thanksgiving harvest celebration is not a part of our official Christian calendar. We have 
On the Christian calendar, we have Advent. We're getting ready. We're preparing to celebrate Advent the entire month of December. We have Lent. We have Easter. We have Ascension Day. We have All Saints Day. But on the Christian calendar, we don't have a Thanksgiving Day. You need to know that prayer and worship were an essential part of those early colonial and national celebrations for Thanksgiving. There was always prayer and worship. There was with that first Thanksgiving in 1621. Why did the pilgrims do that? They were Christians. That was they were they were a Christian colony. I believe, in fact, I know where they got it. They got it from the Old Testament. The people of God laid claim to such a Thanksgiving feast thousands of years ago. Why did they do that? Because God ordered them to do that. In fact, Nehemiah 8, you know what it is? Nehemiah 8 is a record of that celebratory harvest feast being rediscovered. God had first ordered Israel to keep this harvest feast annually in Exodus 23 and in Leviticus 23. There it is. It's written. It's commanded in the Pentateuch. It was written in the book of the law. We talked about this, by the way, in our study in John, in John chapter 7. Remember in John chapter 7, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to a feast. What was that feast? It was the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It marked, before Jesus went up there, that feast had been a part of Israel's history for over a thousand years. This is a thousand years before Jesus. It marked the end of the harvest seasons. The crops were in. The barns were full. And the people of Israel congregated. They came together to celebrate God's goodness to them. The feast would have resembled our Thanksgiving. You know what they did? Why is it called the Feast of Booths? The people were directed to set up little tents, little booths, Little tabernacles, tabernacles of tent. Little tabernacles, little booths. To dwell in for a week, not a day. They would dwell in these little rooms built out of limbs and leaves and such. And be built in the streets in Jerusalem or on the rooftops. And they would dwell in those. Why? To remind them of the wilderness journey, the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness in tents. Now they were in the promised land. Houses, vineyards, gardens, farms, flocks. They were celebrating the wealth God had given them and remembering that they were just as dependent in Jerusalem with all their wealth 
with the vineyards. With the, they were just as dependent on God then as they were in the wilderness. That's what they were remembering. They were remembering the wilderness, that God gave them the manna. God gave them the quail. God sustained them. God gave them the water. God kept them in the wilderness. Well, they were still just that dependent. And that's what they were celebrating. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, rivaled the Passover in popularity. Jerusalem would be packed. It was a week of parties, a week of celebrations. Now, in Nehemiah 8, the Feast of Booths was being rediscovered in Israel. They had been in Babylon for 70 years. We, uh, ex, uh, Tyler has been and teaching through Ezra this year. We spent that time understanding Israel in exile because they had been disobedient. God removed them from Israel. God removed them from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And there they were, the people of God, for 70 years. They kept no feasts. There was no temple. God spoke to them there, but they heard little from the Pentateuch, from the Word of God, from the Law of God. There were no feasts. And now in Nehemiah, they have returned to Jerusalem. They have returned to Jerusalem. They're back home. And this is a very public gathering. It's in the fall month of Tishri, the month of the Feast of Booths. This gathering they've gathered in Jerusalem is a huge gathering. involves many leaders. They've built a, a special huge pulpit from which Ezra and others could read the law of God. They read of the great Feast of Booths that God had commanded. And what happened? The people began to weep. The directions of God's law to celebrate the Feast of Booths had been ignored for seven decades. For many, this was the very first time of hearing of such a thing. Now, you're in the middle of that crowd. Wake, if you, you know, we've set the scene. We've understood. We've put it in context. Put yourself in the middle of that crowd. What do you expect to hear from Ezra and Nehemiah? What do you expect to hear? They're the spiritual icons of your culture. They're gigantic. Well, these people heard what they did not expect. And you will hear what you do not expect. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now you're there. You're weeping with your fellow countrymen. 
the commanded feasts have not been kept. You may be hearing about this for the first time. And what do you hear? Stop crying. Stop weeping. Go to your homes. Go to your neighborhoods. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to those who were not prepared. Do not weep. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what? What they heard? Here were these spiritual icons, Nehemiah and Ezra, and they told this crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands, go have a party. That's what he said. And they said it from the book. When I was a teenager, this would have sounded strange to me. No preacher in the pulpit in, that I grew up in, the church I grew up in, no preacher ever told me, go have a party. Your minister reads the word, read God's law, and then in response to that word tells you to go have a feast in your homes and neighborhoods. You said not we're going to have a dinner here at church afterwards. Wonderful fried chicken. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about you go home. You go to your neighborhoods. And you have a party. As you know, I have many stories. Some of them are true. <laughs> about Ole Miss. I love I love Ole Miss stories. My favorite Ole Miss story was when I was driving to South Central Mississippi to a Reform University Fellowship Conference in the fall on a beautiful fall Friday afternoon. I was speaking at this conference for the weekend. At the conference, at the camp where we were having the conference, they were not serving supper on Saturday night. I mean on Friday night. The rest of the time, they served breakfast and lunch and supper, but Friday night, there was nothing. We were going to arrive, and we weren't going to have supper. So I was looking for a place to eat. Well, instead of going down to I-55, I chose to take the scenic route. And after a while, I realized I'm probably not going to see a restaurant. And I was looking for somewhere to eat. I came to an intersection. I had a stop sign. And... The, the crossing road uh, did not have a stop sign. And there were like 25 cars coming down that highway. And lo and behold, I recognized several people in those cars. They were college students who had grown up at independent in, in Memphis. And we're now at Ole Miss. And then I looked at the cars, and all of them had Ole Miss stickers. <laughs> I started to laugh. I really did. I said, I have found a place to eat. Now, why was I thinking that? Those were students from Ole Miss going to this conference. And if you know anything about Ole Miss students, they don't go anywhere that they don't have a party. It's always a party. And so I just fell in line behind that caravan. 
And we got to Macon, Mississippi, and there was this uh, antebellum home, long driveway up to it. They pulled in. I pulled in right behind him, and I recognized him. I knew the man that owned it. I crashed there for it. I had a good time. What am I saying? I'm saying there are people, there are families and social organizations where you expect to find parties, celebrations. God tells us in his word that his people should be that kind of people, just such a people. Now, that may sound strange to many of us, and that's why we're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage so that we can understand that this is exactly who we should be. First, I want you to look. This, at the, here's, we're looking at people that have been commanded to have a party. We're going to look at the source of their party. What's the source of their party? Let's read it again. Then he said to them, go your way. This is verse 10. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Now skip down to verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees to make booths, as it's written. For this day is sacred. For this day is holy to our Lord. The word for holy there, sometimes translated sacred, is kodosh. It means set apart from the Lord. It's what the word holy. If something is holy, it's been set apart for holy use. It's been set apart. And he says, this day, this week, has been set apart by whom? Not by the nation of Israel, but by the Lord himself. And by the way, it was not a one-day feast. Our Thanksgiving celebration is really paltry. This is a seven-day feast. Now, what's the source? God. He commanded. Why are you doing this? Why are you feasting? I thought, we're Presbyterians or Baptists. I didn't know we had feasts like this. God commanded it. Think about the world's parties. What, what's the source of the world's parties? World parties over its accomplishments. A, a team wins some national championship. We've got to celebrate. We've got to have a party. The world's successes. We look at what we've done and say, we've got to have a party. We've got to celebrate. Look what we've done. TGI, thank goodness it's Friday. We've made it through another week. Let's go party. Their parties do not have, the world's parties do not have God at their center. Whether the world is separating birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, whatever it is. It's different from the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was commanded by God. It was all about God because he had provided all of this. And the world's parties don't have God at the center. Do you see it? Do you understand? Think about, think about Israel gathered in Jerusalem, gathered 
in around Jerusalem. They've worked in the vineyards. They've worked in the wheat fields. They've taken care of the flocks morning, noon, and night, day after day, hour after hour. And they come from those flocks. They come from those fields. They come from those vineyards to celebrate God's goodness that God has provided for them. And, and by the way, there's, these feasts were just constant. There were three of these feasts over a two-month period in Israel at this time, in the, near, the, near the month of Tishri. So they, they, this was just constant, the celebration of God's goodness, of thanking Him. Let me ask you a question. From whence comes the Christian tradition of thanking God for the meal that we're eating? Now, that is sacred with a small s. We're stopping over a meal, you know, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon. And we stop and we say, thank you, Father. Thank you for this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Whatever. You not only made this, whatever the food is that we're eating, but you gave me taste buds to enjoy it. That peanut butter and jelly sandwich comes from him. By the way, peanut butter and banana is even much better. What am I saying? Our days, our weeks should be filled with small parties, small celebrations as we thank God for supplying every need and every blessing that we have. How can the Christian, how can we have a birthday party? Here we're celebrating a birthday of someone in our family or someone in our neighborhood. How can, how can we celebrate a birthday? Who, who made that person? God did. God gave them to us. How can we celebrate a birthday without prayer? God should be at the center. Where do we go? Even when, when someone precious to us has been called home. I can tell you, I've seen it in my family with my father, my brother, my, my, my father, my mother, my brother. I was there. My wife, I was there. They're precious to us. It's hard. But we go to meet with God who created that life and gave us that life, shared that life with us for that space of years. We go to thank Him. We go to affirm that they are with Christ at that very moment when we're, we're crying. We have tears. They're good tears. It's gravy. But we go to affirm that in those tears, they're home in glory. We go to affirm as they die in Christ, they have died in Christ, and we die in Christ, we will see them again. And then usually, what do we do? There's never been a funeral in my family, a memorial service in my family, that we did not go straight to a party.
It is hard. But there's friends and there's Christian friends and the Holy Spirit is in the middle of it. And there's wine and there's great food. And there's joy in it. Real joy. You see, the party celebration is constant. Why? Why is it constant? Whether it's a wedding or a funeral. We don't say, well, I can't celebrate. I can't have joy because it's a funeral. We don't do that. Because the blessings of God are as constant. You know how, you know how constant our thanksgiving should be? You want to know how constant it should be? As constant as his blessings. Now go find a moment. Go find one second in your life where you can say, here at this moment, I'm not completely dependent upon God. You can't find five seconds, not one second of your life where you can say that. Everywhere you go, where you go for the rest of your life, every second, you're going to be dependent on God. That's what we affirm this morning. From Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. That's how we live. That's how we eat. That's how we breathe. That's how we have wives and husbands and children and parents. The source of the party, the source of the celebration, the source of the feast is God himself. Secondly, I want you to see... The decision of joy in this celebration. Look at verse 9. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people as they heard the words of the law. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Look at verse 10. And do not be grieved. Look at verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing. They went from grieving to rejoicing. Do you see it? It was a conscious decision on their part. They had, probably, they had been grieving probably over their sins, probably over the tragic sins of their grandparents that had caused this exile away from Jerusalem for 70 years. In exile away from the temple, in exile away from the feasts. There they were. And God told them through Ezra and Nehemiah, stop grieving. It's not time for that right now. There'll always be Christians who will tell us we need more grieving. Grieving over our sins. Grieving over the sins of our culture. Christianity that is in a state, a constant state of grieving is a misled and errant Christianity. When we come grieving to the cross with our sins, that's a good thing. But if we don't leave that cross with joyous laughter of grace and forgiveness, that's in, that, then that's an insult to the great work of Jesus Christ. If our confession and our repentance does not end in gospel joy, then we don't understand the gospel. These people were grieving. They made a conscious decision to turn from grieving. 
People, some of you need to hear this. You really need to hear this. Because you look at the darkness in your life. You look at the fallenness. And some of us are apt to say, John, you don't know what I've been through. First, don't ever say that. Because God says that we've all been through the tough times. There's no temptation taking us, but as such as the common man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Joy does not depend on circumstance. Some of you in this congregation, I don't know who you are, but I know in a crowd this large there has to be someone. You're always waiting to celebrate. You're always putting it off. Well, I'll, I'll celebrate when I get married. When I get enough money, then I'll be happy. Or I'll be happy when I lose weight. I'll be happy when I gain weight. You know, whatever. We always put it off. As if it's the circumstance that brings the joy. Listen to me. In Christianity, circumstance never brings joy. The joy. What's the fruit of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit in our lives, what's the fruit? What, what happens in our lives? Love, joy, peace. We talked about it here in our Pathways class yesterday. And we said, well, if that's produced by the Holy Spirit, can't the world love and have joy and have peace and patience? Yes, the world can. But what happens because we have a transformed heart and because the Holy Spirit of the living God lives within us, it moves that love to a different level. It moves that joy to a different level. It moves it to a supernatural level. Now the world says, you know, love your friends. The Bible says, no, 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 love your neighbor. You may not like your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor. And it says love, you think that's tough? Love your enemies. It moves that love to a supernatural level. It does the same thing with joy. It's a conscious decision. When Paul and Silas were in jail, thrown in jail, beaten, thrown into the energy, chained. And what were they doing at midnight in that jail? And the whole jail was saying, what are these guys doing? How are they doing that? You know what they were saying? They were singing the hymns of Zion. They were singing the hymns of God. They were singing songs. They made a conscious decision. I always loved the character Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. And if you know that story, you know what I'm beginning to say. Eeyore is just always a sad sack. Eeyore's always saying, nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Nobody invited me to Pooh's party. It's a conscious decision, folks. Conscious decision. The source of the party, God himself. The decision of joy in the celebration. Thirdly, I want you to see the witness of the celebration. Now, I included on that scripture sheet Psalm 126. Why did I include that? Because Psalm 126 is a hymn written by these very people in Nehemiah chapter 8. They wrote that hymn. 
They wrote it when they came home from Babylon about the joy that they had, that they were now home in Jerusalem. Look at it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Jerusalem, restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This is what they sang when they came home to Jerusalem. I got a question for you. Does the world look at our celebrations and say, the Lord must have done great things for them. Look at it. Wow. Look at it. What kind of party do you throw when you've won $300 million in the lottery? What kind of party do you throw? Say $300 million, that's a lot. There's a reason to celebrate. Let me tell you, $300 million is paltry compared to what Jesus has done for us. It's paltry. I believe the greatest testimony to the world around us in Face County, the most, our most powerful testimony would be that supernatural love that we have and the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love. But what's the second in the list? And that list goes by importance. Love is the most important, but the second most important is joy. And I think the second greatest witness we can have in Fayetteville is the joy that we have as Christian families, Christians individuals, Christian churches. This is important, people. In the month of Tishri, a month that took part of our September and October, Israel had three great feasts. Three. Folks, the world has a right to say to us, if you're the people of God, Where's the party? Where's the laughter? Where's the joy? And these folks in Nehemiah 8, they had no notion of Calvary, no notion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had no knowledge of the incarnation that God himself would come flesh. If they had three feasts, we know about Christ. We know about the gospel. We know about the cross. For every feast they had, we ought to have ten. The source of the party, God himself, the decision of joy in this celebration, the witness of this celebration. And finally, the power of joy, the power of joy of the Lord. You, do, you don't think about that as being power. The joy of the Lord, the joy that we have in the Lord, you don't think about how powerful that is, do you? I didn't. Go back, and this is we're through now. Go back to verse 10. He said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send fortunes to anyone who has nothing ready. For, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see that? The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think Nehemiah got it wrong. I, I think it's backwards. Shouldn't it be the strength of the Lord is our joy? That's not what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah got it right. The joy of the Lord is your strength. People, listen. What keeps our lives from being eaten alive by sorrow, 
by despair, by cynicism, hopelessness. You know what does? The joy of the Lord is our fortress. We talked about even celebrating at funerals. That's what we do. Because we God is in our midst. Our stronghold is the joy of the Lord. In every great city in the ancient world, there was an Acropolis. Maybe you've heard of the Acropolis of Athens, up on the Acropolis. Well, look, it's, it's a combination of two Greek words, acra meaning high or hill, and polis meaning city. The high hill of the city. And people, when they were attacked, when the city was attacked by an enemy, the people would run to the Acropolis to defend their city, to that fortified hill. Well, the Acropolis of the kingdom of God is the joy of the Lord. That's what Nehemiah was saying. That's our fortress. There's a time for fasting. There's a time for grieving. But if it is not followed by running to joy, the fortress of the joy of the Lord, then we will be overtaken by the despair of the world. What keeps us from that despair? It's the joy of the Lord. This Thanksgiving week, I am glad it is a civic holiday in our culture. I really am. But for me, for you, in our faith, it is a sacred, it's a holy celebration. So I say to you, as I close the worship, as we close our worship today, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Our hymn is most appropriate. Great is thy faithfulness. Please stand as we sing. <clears throat>